Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but it seems hard to believe for me that we are in the third week of November, right? Uh, it's just this year has been crazy and weird and quick and slow all at the same time. And it's not going to get any simpler because this week typically kicks off for most of us a six-week run of gatherings with family and friends and celebrations. And so I just want to start off this morning by just asking you, as you think about family, what's your family like? Now, I love asking that question to people and then watching their reaction as much as I listen to their words. Because for a lot of people, that question immediately elicits this eye roll when I ask about family. Or it elicits a huge smile on their face. Or it might also, they might just give this deep sigh. It's complicated. My guess that every one of us has some weird stories in our family. I'm not talking about the dysfunctional stuff. I'm not talking about the abusive stuff, though I'll freely confess my family has that, their fair share of that as well. But I'm talking about the quirky, weird stuff, right? The stuff that makes you wonder when you get together why family does that thing, like weird uncle stuff. My weird uncle was named Carl, and he was a great dude, loved him deeply, but he had some weird habits. Habits that were bad enough that when it came to holiday celebrations, you wanted to carefully choose where you sat at the table. Strategic decisions were made because you wanted the food to get to you before he got to him because of his habits. Now, here's the worst one, right? Whatever meal we were at with him, if he needed ketchup, which he put on just about everything, he would grab the ketchup bottle and pour. And Ketchup bottles don't always make a clean ending when they pour, right? So there's a little drip that gets on the edge and wants to run down the side of the bottle. My Uncle Carl developed his own unique solution to keeping the ketchup bottle clean. Yeah, it's worse than you think. He would take the ketchup bottle, he would lick that drop of ketchup off the side, put the cap back on, and then hand it to you. I know. It's weird, right? Who does that stuff? Now, he did that with the ketchup. He did that with honey. He did it with the gravy boat. He did it with the spoon that was in the mashed potatoes. And as a kid, as a kid, as an adult, that just grosses me out, right? And I think if he were alive now in COVID, that kind of ha- action is going to kill somebody, you know? But thank God for my grandma Waddell. Lula May was one of the most loving people I have ever known. And you could have a conversation with her. She could give you one of her great big hugs, and it seems like all of your fears evaporated, and you felt loved. And she made all the other craziness in the family worth hanging around for just because of her love. I think every one of our families, if we're honest, is this mix of weird and wonderful. So when the Bible paints an image for us of being God's children together, being his family, it's fair to ask, what's that family like? What's the weird? What's the wonderful about being together? And how is it really any different or better than my family of origin? I think a big chunk of what we'll look at this morning is how the values we live out together as God's family is what make us unique. We live lives that are marked by gratitude and grace and acceptance and forgiveness and love. 
And if we can agree on anything this morning, I think we can agree that our world can use a lot more of that. Well, I don't know if it's helpful for you, but when I start thinking about this idea of family in Scripture, one of the first things I have to anchor in my brain is this idea that Jesus didn't have a perfect family either. I mean, the tension that he felt on this earth between his siblings and himself, even at times between his mother and himself, come out a couple of places in the Gospels. At one point, his family boldly told him, over a dinner meal, told him how he should run his ministry. They essentially sat the Son of God down and told him how to do his job. John says in chapter 7, he says, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. Don't hang out here in Galilee, Jesus. That's not a high leverage decision for somebody who wants to build a ministry and change the world. You should be in Jerusalem. You should be in Judea. You should be where the festival is happening right now. That's a better plan to build your kingdom. Come on. Can you imagine? Can you imagine sitting across the table from the Son of God and saying, I think you're making a mistake. Your strategy's off. Later on, another time when he didn't heed his siblings' advice, not only his brothers but his mothers came to one of his public teachings with the intention of removing him from public ministry to fix him. And when his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. They said he's out of his mind. Those are great family conversations, right? Even Jesus had that within his own family. I think an honest look at Jesus' family of origin helps us see that our messed up families are pretty much normal. There's an odd sense of comfort in that. I think it helps us relate more to Jesus in that his life and his struggles are not really that much different than ours. So what did Jesus mean then when he invited us into God's family? And how are those relationships different than what we know in our own families? I think the best way to picture that because of the dysfunction in his own family is not necessarily there. We don't get a lot of details about that in Scripture. We do have a very detailed idea of his relationship with three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And in many ways, I think they were closer to Jesus even than his own family and give us a good idea of what that family of God should look like. Now, for background, the three of them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, lived in a town of, in the town of Bethany, which was just on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. It was on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, about a two-mile walk from city center in Jerusalem. Bethany, its name means house of misery, and that was an apt description of this town where they lived. It was established on the outskirts of town to be a place where those who were terminally ill or those who had diseases like leprosy that were very contagious, Bethany was a place they were sent to live and to die. I do think that there was part of that was to try to limit the infection in Jerusalem. But I have to wonder, too, if a part of that wasn't just simply keep them out of sight, hide them away. I love the heart of Jesus. The Gospels tell us that Jesus went to Bethany more than 12 times 
in his ministry, three years on earth. He hung out with people that nobody else wanted to be around. He ate dinner multiple times with a man whose name was Simon the leper, not Simon the former leper, Simon, the guy who actually has leprosy right now. People didn't want to see that, let alone have dinner at that person's house. And Jesus hung out there. On one of those trips into Bethany, the Bible tells us that Jesus met Martha and she welcomed Jesus into her home. This may very well have been the very first time they were together, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and Jesus. This may well have been the start of their relationship. And if we trace that relationship all through Scripture, I think there's some key lessons for what it means to be a part of God's family, a kind of relationship that Jesus is looking for with us. The first lesson is this. In this family, we welcome people when others might overlook or exclude them. Now, we have no indication that Martha knew Jesus prior to this dinner invitation. She took a lot of risk in that simple act of inviting Jesus and his entourage into her home. It was risky in that day for a man and a woman to speak in public. It was risky to open your home to a traveling teacher, especially one you didn't know, and especially one that drew the crowds that Jesus did. It was risky to invite Jesus without checking with her siblings. And in spite of the risk, she welcomed Jesus and everyone who was traveling with him. With Jesus came the sick and the dying who were looking to be healed. With Jesus came the religious zealots who were already dogging Jesus, trying to trip him up. It would have been a lot easier for Martha to just exclude people, just limit the crowd that was coming in. Easier to rule people out. I mean, my house is too small. That food's going to cost a fortune. It's been a crazy week, Jesus. I just can't. But she didn't do that. And in her example, I see ways that I can improve, and I think all of us can improve, in how we welcome people into our home and into our life. Now, it's a crazy time we're living in right now, to be sure. And the idea of welcoming people into our homes physically is not always safe or wise. But we can start to plan. We can start to plan for the time in the not-too-distant future when that is safe and wonderful and wise again. And so what I'd encourage us all to do this morning, I'm going to start my list today, is to think of five people, five families even, that you would love to have in your home once this pandemic goes away. Think of how you could share just a simple meal with them and conversation and be welcoming. And if in the process of making that list, you discover some people that you kind of lost touch with over the last eight months, do the old-fashioned thing. Call them. Talk with them. Tell them you're sorry you've lost touch. Take a risk and rebuild that relationship. Get on Zoom or FaceTime. Share a meal. Share a glass of wine together and catch up on life. Or maybe the risk you take this week in welcoming people is when your family does get together for Thanksgiving. And you look around the room and you pay special attention and look for the person who's easily ignored, the person who might be left out or feel unwelcome. Can we just agree together today that we'll reach out, that we'll open our heart and our lives a little bit more 
in this season. Remembering that every significant relationship we have in this life started because someone took a risk. Take that risk. Second lesson I think we can learn from their relationship is that in the family of God, we're called to be authentic and honest with each other. Now, this, this started really early in Jesus' relationship, especially with Martha. Think back to that first dinner together, and you can read that in John 11. It's a long passage describing what happened. But the gist of it is that Martha was overwhelmed with the idea of preparing a dinner for this many people. And she was instantly furious when she looked in the room where Jesus was and saw her sister Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, listening, paying attention to Jesus, and Jesus paying attention to her. And so she goes into that room, she goes over to Jesus, and she says, don't you think this is unfair? Seriously, make her get up and help me. That's some hard truth. And I don't picture Jesus and Martha going over to Jesus and whispering it in her ear. There's a lot of energy behind that. But the truth flowed both ways in this relationship. And so Jesus replied to her, my dear Martha. Did you love that? Did you love that Jesus met her rage with tenderness? My dear Martha, you're worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary's chosen that, and it's not going to be taken away from her. From the outset, this relationship between Mary and Martha was different. They cared enough to be honest and authentic with each other. Jesus just simply told her, Martha, you're so engrossed in the details, you're missing the opportunity to spend time with me when I'm a guest in your home. And it's not that Martha was doing something wrong. She was just choosing what was good and neglecting what was best. She had a huge blind spot, and Jesus lovingly, directly named it. So here's the question in this lesson for us. Who knows you well enough? Who loves you enough? Who have you given permission to to point out blind spots in your life? Who will you hear those words from in the moment when it's toughest to hear? Even if it's not delivered well. We need friends in our life who have permission and aren't afraid to tell us the truth that we cannot see or are unwilling to see about our thoughts, our words, our actions, and our faith. Here's the third lesson I see from their relationship. In this family, we are here for each other in the good and the bad, in the highs and the lows of life. John gives back-to-back examples in chapter 11 and chapter 12. In the first, he talks about how Jesus was there for this family. Jesus was teaching one day, and these two sisters sent a message to Jesus saying, Lord, your dear friend Lazarus is very sick. It was painful news, and by the time that Jesus got to Bethany, Lazarus had not only died, but the sisters had been in four days of mourning. Their pain is profound, and it just pours out of them when they finally talk with Jesus. Gratefully, Mary and Martha each had a private moment with Jesus before they engaged the crowds, and they both expressed the same emotion-laden words. Lord, Martha says first, Lord, if you only had been here, my brother would not have died. Knowing Martha's previous interactions with Jesus, 
This, to me, I hear this as a little confrontational from Martha. I hear it as a little aggressive. I hear a lot of blame in this. When Martha comes to Jesus and she falls at his feet, she begins just weeping. She has a completely different posture when Mary comes. She says the exact same words. Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Maybe it's the fact that she's on the ground at Jesus' feet. Maybe it's the fact that she can hardly get the words out through her tears. But I hear a different tone from her. She's broken. She's humble. She's grieving. Look, however it happens, grief is a messy journey. It is different, even for two people who are grieving the same loss. And in this moment, Jesus didn't try to explain away their pain. He didn't minimize it or shame them. He didn't pronounce one journey as being better or healthier than the other. He was simply present with them. He listened to them. He walked with them to Lazarus' tomb. And though this story in chapter 12 of John is very clear that Jesus intended from the beginning to raise Lazarus from the dead, Rather than dismissing their pain and suffering, trying to argue it away, he simply stood beside his friend's grave and he wept with those sisters. He was with them in one of life's darkest moments. I think the second example of being with in the dark moments can be easily missed because John states it so simply He says in the beginning of chapter 12, six days before the Passover celebration began. And we don't live by the Jewish calendar, so it's kind of lost to us. But this really in Jesus' life was six days before the last Passover he would celebrate with his followers. It was six days before Jesus would be arrested and executed unfairly. Think about that for a moment. What if that were you? It's a sobering thought. But if you knew that this week was the last week of your life, who would you spend those days with? What would you do? Jesus made a clear choice. John goes on in that verse to say, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany at the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. Martha cooked a big meal. Of course she did. (laughs) Mary sat at Jesus' feet, offered him a very expensive gift. Lazarus, the Bible tells us, just kind of sat at the table and hung out with Jesus. And I am sure that this family and all who were there laughed and talked as they ate together and shared some wine. I can imagine Lazarus telling Jesus how his life had changed. In the time between his being raised from the dead and this meal, Lazarus' faith had grown so strong, his testimony was so unique. The Bible tells us a large number of people were leaving their Jewish faith and following Jesus, which infuriated the local leaders whose master plan was to find a way to kill Lazarus. Now, I've got a twisted sense of humor, so I kind of imagine how that conversation went down at the table. Can you imagine Lazarus telling Jesus that the religious leaders want to kill him? And Lazarus just laughing and going, so I looked at him and I said, hey, give it your best shot. I've been dead before, right? It's just, it's just this irony that's going on. Jesus, Martha, Mary, Lazarus spent unhurried chunks of time together in that final week of Jesus' life. 
which is really what we need when life gets tough. We need people to just be with us as we are, not as they wish we would be. The hospice organization noted years ago this strange behavior that we have. The idea that when someone has been pronounced terminally ill, when their days get short, the natural human tendency that people exhibit is not to move closer, but to withdraw. We don't go as frequently to see them. We don't call them as often as we did before. We might still sit in the room, but we sit a little further away. We don't touch them as often, hold their hand as often as the end gets closer. These dear friends fought that human tendency. And as time grew short for Jesus, they stayed close. They shared a meal. They marked the highs and lows of life, and they found strength and comfort and hope in each other. Look, these are not the only values. These are not the only practices that are a part of God's family, but I do believe that they are at the core of what God desires for us in his family. God calls us to create this community where everyone is welcome, this family where everyone is welcome. We are honest and we are authentic with each other, where we are cheering each other on and we are there in the highs and the lows of life. This community, this family, where everyone is welcome. Now, I also believe that nobody among us, except the raging extroverts, believes this morning that you need a hundred or more of these kinds of friends. I don't think that's healthy either. If you can have four or five relationships like this in your life, count yourself blessed. But I also believe that these relationships don't happen by accident. It takes commitment. It takes intentionality on our part. It takes an investment of our one commodity that we have the least of, time. Relationships like these, family like this, is handcrafted over time. It is tempered by love and grace. And the most natural thing for us to do is to neglect those relationships. It's the path of least resistance. We're all busy. We're all stressed out from COVID. Parents are stressed out from coaching their kids through distance learning. You are stressed out from fill in the blank. But I promise you, that these relationships matter too much to neglect them. No matter what's happening in life, there will always be obstacles to creating this kind of family. So can we simply agree together that we are going to push through the obstacles? We are going to make the time. We're going to take risks to be the family that God calls us to be, to blast out of our self-oriented routines and to accept Jesus' invitation to invest in and build and grow in deep relationships as sons and daughters of God, as a family of faith.